Welcome back to Sit Down Startup Podcast. I'm Pedro. And I'm Tara. Thanks for listening to our first season. Like all good things in life, our season is coming to an end. It's been a pleasure bringing stories of fascinating startups navigating the changing tides of 2020. I hope that these interviews served as an inspiration for you to continue hustling and building better relationships with your customers. From one home office to another, Zendesk leaders connected with founders, CEOs, and makers on their startup journey. In our first season, you learned from the best in their field on how to start up. We dove into topics like customer experience, leading with empathy, and pivoting your business model to serve our ever-changing world. And don't worry, we'll have another season for you soon. Our final guest speaker for season one is Max Yoder, CEO and founder at Lessonly. Lessonly is a learning management software that helps teams learn, practice, and do better work. Over 3 million learners at more than 1,000 leading companies use Lessonly. Max shares Lessonly's origin story, the importance of remote learning during COVID, and some great insights from his new book. To interview Max, we invited Tiffany Apsinski. Vice President of Public Policy and Social Impact at Zendesk and the Executive Director of Zendesk Neighbor Foundation. Tiffany, pioneer of public policy and social impact function, working alongside our employees to develop a robust volunteer-based program that supports our nonprofit partners all over the world. Are you ready? Let's sit down and start up. How's it going, Tiffany? Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well. Thanks for being on our podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, same. Um, So we start off each podcast with the same question, and that is, what is your favorite coffee shop drink? Yeah, I like an Americano. Yeah, I just like the smoothness of it. There's something special about the smoothness to me. How about you? Well, right now, we when we were back in the office, um, we our offices were above a chai bar. Mm. And so I very much miss which was the dirty chai. So it was the it was the David Rio chai bar and they had a, a spiced chai and they would put a couple shots of espresso in it. So it was kind of caramely smooth like an americano yeah. but just enough sweetness. So I'm I'm really craving that right now. I got that when I was at that shop. Uh, so yes. last time I was at Zendesk, that is what I got. Uh, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. So that's really cool. We have something I, in common. I knew I was destined to interview you on this podcast. And that just that just showed it right there. <laughs> We're going to have a nice time today. This will be a good conversation. <laughs> so to, to get us you know, beyond coffee, um, why don't we dig into one of the core questions of today, is, which is why did you found Lessonly? Sure. Yeah. So my, my friends and I started the company eight years ago, started it with three other gentlemen, and they were all, uh, you know, 10 years older than me, had had, had kind of started businesses, uh, had some capital to deploy and, and some experience. And, and I didn't have a lot of experience or capital, but I had a lot of time. And so we were throwing around ideas of, you know, what's an interesting business to work on. I had just rolled off of my first company called Quipple, which I tried to make work. It did not work. It spent about a year, nine months uh, bootstrapping that. Um, and I was hungry to try something new. And we started talking about training software. One of my, one of my partners, Eric, was like, uh, hey, I've started and sold three businesses and I've never invested in training software. Why is that? And so we started digging into it and we found that Eric, Eric's reasons were, were pretty similar for folks, especially if their companies were 100 people, 200 people, 300 people. Uh, 
expensive. They, they found training software to be expensive. They found it to be hard to use. And they found it to be uh, hard in terms of measuring uh, how well it was working, you know, the return on investment. And, I, and that had a lot to do, we learned, with who was buying the training software. It was historically human resources. So we said, well, let's make it uh, not hard to use, not expensive, um, and let's tie it to return on investment. And over time, we, we got really good at that by focusing on two teams, sales teams and customer service teams. We found out that, you know, human resources does not need to be involved in the training of a sales team or a customer service team. Uh, the people on the team have the domain expertise. They just need an easy way to share it. Uh, so new knowledge comes out, Tiffany, and it's uh, on a customer service team, um, and we can say, here's some new information. Maybe we have a new uh, pricing or promotion uh, that we're doing uh, th this month. Let's say we're a big telecom company. We have got new pricing and promotion. We can assign a lesson, and then we can say, okay, now that you understand how the new pricing and promotion works kind of intellectually, let's practice it. And practice is how we get stuff in, in the heart and the soul, and that's where behavior change happens. So we give customer service reps the ability to practice their, their, their pitch on the new promotion, and they can do that on their own accord or they can role play with somebody else, but that's really well where the, where the change happens. Um, so yeah, eight years ago we said training software can be easier to use and we can tie it to, to, to the ROI and now we have a thousand customers and a, you know, a couple hundred employees. It's working well. Well, congratulations to that and your timing for it and sort of your vision to go that route is so wonderful because I'm sure as you're seeing with the customers that you have, you know, to, to focus, well, like, you know, sales and customer experience, those roles are becoming so technical. And the more technical they get and the, and the, and the more technology becomes ubiquitous as it already is. But it's, it's the, the thing with technology that is this catch-22 is you can develop it faster and faster and faster. And you can push out new products and you can push out new features so regularly that the education piece is so, it's so easy to lose sight of how important that is to have it synchronous with all of this development and with all of this uh, innovation that you're, you're pushing your project, your product to be competitive. You hit the nail on the head. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, copy that part of this conversation <laughs> because it's, it's exactly right. I mean, the playbook's changing uh, on a week, weekly basis. And it used to be, you know, that people would think about training as onboarding. And, you know, that, that means that whatever the playbook was during onboarding persists. And, and we all know it doesn't, right? Uh, you know, that's, that's just false. Uh, so weekly changes, bi-weekly changes. We have the speed optimized tool so that you can address those changes quickly, get them out to the team. And then we also allow, you know, customer service reps to, uh, to, to share knowledge. Uh, so if somebody learns a new way to do something or, or do, has a great practice scenario or session and they want to share it, they can do that. So it's really fun. Helping people do better work is, is stimulating uh, all the time. And what I love about Lesson Lee's mission, which is when we do better work, we live better lives. I'd love for you to expand on that because, you know, we as a society do value education, but it seems that we value it at certain periods of our life and then we forget about that. And I want to hear more about how you're connecting this value of learning continuously with actually having a better life. Yeah. Well, we, we, we just drew the correlation between, and we heard it from our customers first. It took us three years to formalize our mission. So we were three years into the business before we really understood our mission because at that point we had enough customers to really understand what value do we provide? You know, we had, a, we had an idea, um, but to see it in real life and to hear it from our customers was really encouraging. And what they told us is the confidence and the competence of our teammates has gone way up because we're communicating more clearly about what it looks like to do, to do better work. And when they do a great job, it, uh, uh, on a given day, they, they have a, a sense of accomplishment. They have a sense of maybe joy and levity. Uh, they may be a little more carefree that day and excited. And they take that home with them. 
you know, whether it's just walking down the street on their way home from work, you know, how we classically left work out of a building um, and they see somebody on the street and they bring that levity to that individual or they walk into their door and if it's their dog greeting them, their partner greeting them, their kids greeting them, that energy persists. So, you know, what, what we do at work transcends the workplace. If it's a good day, we take it home with us. If it's not such a good day, we take it home with us. Um, and so we want to have people have more confidence and competence at work so that they can take it home with them. I love that. We we explored that concept a couple of years ago at uh, one of our events, and we called them micro moments. And the idea was that, just what you said, so you have this great day at work. Um, let's take it from the customer side, that you're a customer, you had a problem, you talked to your support agent, they fixed the problem. And that means that your your ride to work that day is better. When you greet your coworkers in the morning, you can come in with positivity and that the idea is you're just going to go going to continually bring that energy forward. But on the con side, say we went to chai bar and they were out of that espresso drink we like, and they were really rude about it. And then we're mad at that next meeting that we have at Zendesk. And then we're mad at this person. And, and I, I think that it is really true that you have to focus on these small moments and the power in those small moments. Um, and there is, and there's really no, uh, I think better, um, uh, sort of metaphor for that than in those kind of constant transactions that you have as a support agent and as a customer. We are customers. We are um, customers pretty much like almost every moment of our life, whether it's with our families and our coworkers and when we're consumers. Um, so that, that definitely resonates. I love that about how you're thinking about your, your company and your product. We have a lot of people excited around us who kind of continue to show us uh, how much they benefit from from just clarity, you know, a lot of times uh, teams are sink or swim. Uh, it, it, people either figure it out or they don't, and you know, the ones who don't figure it out um, have to leave. And we think a lot more people would figure it out if if, if we're, you're clear about what you want them to do, you know. And and so we think that's the, the the we think it's important that teams do that. They get clear about what they need, and a lot more people will swim instead of sink when you do that. And you felt so passionate about that point, actually, that I understand you recently wrote a book to dig into those. So tell us the title of it and, and what that book is about. Yeah, it's called Do Better Work. And it's about finding clarity and camaraderie uh, in your relationships. And those relationships are can be work relationships or they can be personal relationships. My uh, thesis is that uh, strong relationships are built on strong communication. Uh, and communication isn't uh, just listening, it's hearing. You know, it's, it's, it's hearing somebody uh, and, and, and understanding what, what they want, what they need, and also communicating what you want when you need. So clarity and camaraderie are these two things that I think create a strong communication or create strong relationships. So the book is about building them. And there, uh, we walk through eight behaviors on how to build clarity and camaraderie. Um, clarity is about understanding, you know, where are we going? Why are we going there? What's my role in it? What's your role in it? Um, it's also about understanding what works. Why does it work? How do I do it? You know, those are all parts of clarity. And clarity is this moving target. Like we said, the playbook changes week to week. So uh, being having clarity today doesn't mean we have it tomorrow. It's a constant thing we have to keep working at. Um, and then there's camaraderie, which is about a mutual trust and respect between uh, two people. And when we have camaraderie, uh, we have a real relationship because I'm allowed to be vulnerable in front of you without fear of retribution or reprisal. And you're allowed to do the same with me when we have vulnerability. We're going to celebrate our wins together. Uh, we're going to um, commiserate our losses together. And you know, we're going to care about one another. I don't really think there's long-term clarity without camaraderie. Because uh, when, when, when a group lacks camaraderie or when a relationship lacks camaraderie, communication tends to decrease. There's a lack of trust, right? Um, so we're not going to communicate as openly. So I think you need both. And uh, the book walks through 
simple behaviors that anybody on a team can apply in order to bring more clarity or camaraderie. And a, a really, uh, really basic one is being vulnerable. And uh, for me, vulnerability is uh, as simple as acknowledging reality. That's how I define it. So if if you're having uh, if you're feeling nervous, Tiffany, and you say, "Hey, I'm feeling nervous," you're being vulnerable. If you're feeling excited and you say, "I'm feeling excited," you're being vulnerable. If somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer and you say, "I don't know," you're being vulnerable. You're acknowledging reality. Um, but if you did something different, like you said, uh, maybe you were nervous, and somebody says, "Hey, you feeling okay?" and you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm totally fine." That's not being vulnerable, right? That's not acknowledging your reality. Uh, so I, it's as simple as that to me, uh, and I think a lot of times we, we are not vulnerable at work because of this uh, false notion that leaders are supposed to know the answer. And everybody wants to be a leader, right? Um, uh, or a lot of people want to be leaders in my, in my experience. Uh, and so knowing the answer, if, if it's predicated on knowing the answer, well then um, being nervous might be looked down upon, saying I don't know might be looked down upon. So you know, we talk about in the book, uh, let's, let's, let's realize that's a myth that leaders know the answer. The reality is that leaders learn the answer. And when we're learning the answer, we're allowed to be nervous. We're allowed to say I don't know. You know we're allowed to be excited because uh, we're learning as we go. So just flipping that script is a really basic, simple, but I think difficult thing to do. Um, especially in the culture that we live in. And I, I think I, what I admire about that explanation of vulnerability as well is that there, I think vulnerability can be misunderstood. And it's this idea that you, when you're vulnerable, you come in and you, you say, this is everything traumatic that's ever happened to me. Let me share with you. When really what you're describing is vulnerability is a space to say, I don't know the answers. I'm not myself today. If I'm not 100%, cut me some slack, don't dig into it. Like really it's just being as honest as you can. And what I also give you a lot of credit for is you, you opened up the book. That's the first chapter is like, let's, let's just get this out there. I'm going to be vulnerable here on page one. <laughs> right. Well, it's every other behavior is predicated on vulnerability. I mean, you can't do any of the other behaviors like having difficult conversations. You know why we don't do that a lot? It's a vulnerable thing to sit down with somebody and have a difficult conversation. Say, you know, I'm frustrated about something that's happening in our relationship. That requires vulnerability. Getting agreements requires vulnerability. Uh, us coming together and having a shared kind of course of action, I'm gonna have to give and get, uh, I'm gonna have to expose parts of myself that might not be comfortable, um, uh, but we gotta do it. Uh, so everything in the book is predicated on, uh, on vulnerability, and I think uh, we woefully lack uh, vulnerability in, in, in the world, and I just wanna see more of it. Because the more I see vulnerable people, uh, you know, the more I see real people. And the more I get an actual sense of what the human experience is instead of some facade of what we want the human experience to be. Uh, you know, I want to know what it's really like to be a human, uh, not somebody's Instagram version of it. Yeah. Because the more I learn what it's like to be a human, the more I see we have this shared humanity of, of challenges and, and joys. And I find that to be way more uplifting than, than a facade. And there's so much there's so much strength in it as well. And I think that's how you become stronger and you build stronger relationships. And so much so that I understand that you brought in a lot of your staff to even help write and edit the book. So even making yourself vulnerable to their feedback right in the moment as you're writing a book. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> how was that process to say, I'm not going to write this in the silo. You're a part of this. I understand you even rewrote some chapters based on that feedback. Um, and 
Yeah, talk about that a little bit. It's super interesting. Yeah, so uh, the editor of the book was my teammate Ben Battaglia, and Ben and I, uh, you know, Ben was a rock for me. Um, and and we, what, the second chapter of the book, share before you're ready, is this idea of um, get out of the vacuum uh, with ideas uh, early. So get your kind of first draft, and then sanity check it with people who depend on the success of the project. Going to them and saying, you know, what's working for you? What isn't working for you? What am I missing? So that's going to be a chapter in the book. Um, it's really important that I that I write the book that way. And so it came to the t- came to my teammates and said, hey, if anybody would like to um, suggest edits to the book, um, just raise your hand. And we had 40 people raise their hand. At the time, we had about 100, maybe 110, 120 people on the team. So big, big portion of the team. And my, my ask to them was, hey, this, this book is going to have my name on it, but it's going to have our name on it too, right? It's going to represent us. And I want to make sure you're proud of it. Um, I want to make sure you point out angles that, you know, we, that I'm missing uh, because once we print, you know, thousands and thousands of copies of this, it's going to be too late. <laughs> so let's, let's do that now. And it was awesome. You know, people found, um, people call that examples that they thought were less clear uh, than they kind of hoped they wanted to be or when they suggested alternatives. They found just small things that I'd read so many times I didn't even notice them um, that, that I, I wanted out of the, you know, I wanted to figure out before we printed the book. So yeah, those 40 people, you can read them in the acknowledgments. Uh, it was really cool and it was also confidence building to get to like the last 10% and know that people were proud of it and pumped for it mm-hmm. before we had hit print. Yeah. That book came out last year and, you know, everything that we're sort of talking about along the lines of vulnerability and camaraderie and clarity, how do those concepts fit in for you right now as we are all sheltered in place, it's COVID, we, there's social unrest across the globe? How has your leadership had to shift and your thinking around these concepts have had to shift given the times we're in right now? Yeah, I'm I'm still doubling down on those two uh, on those two ideas, um, and uh, but it's harder than ever I think to create the camaraderie, then uh, the sense of camaraderie that was natural in an office space. Uh, you know, we're physically together in that space. We can sense one another's physical energy in a way that is just very difficult right now to 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 recapture. So we're you know m- my team and I are adjusting to figure out what it looks like to continue to build camaraderie today. And I'll tell you, I don't really know if I have a lot of, I definitely don't have a lot of answers. Um, the things that I've heard from our team that are working in terms of building camaraderie are having unstructured hangouts uh, where 15 minutes first thing in the morning, uh, the, the team you know can get together with whether it's six people or you know four people or whatever the team size is um, and just have coffee together for 15 minutes and say, you know, what, what did you do last night? What are you enjoying? And the cool thing about that is if somebody enters uh, that Zoom meeting for those 15 minutes, having their energy kind of not where they want it to be, and somebody else in that room is having their energy kind of in, in a really in a really good spot, really strong spot, they can bring that other person up, right, uh, in, in no time. Um, or, or they can just be a listening ear for the individual. So that's been helpful. Um, and that's just a, you know, a quick tactic. Uh, and then another thing is just picking up the phone mm-hmm. and calling people and just saying, how you doing? You know, not yeah. to talk about work, just how, how you doing? What's new? Um, you know, what are, what, are, what, is your, what are your partner doing these days? You know, uh, what are your kids doing these days? What are you uh, practicing these days that you might not have otherwise? You know, that sort of stuff. Pretty basic, but uh, that's the best I can do right now. It's, it's been a real challenge. I mean, I really take physical energy as – I didn't realize how much I needed physical presence of other people. I got my wife here, um, and, and we're making it work. But, you know, it's, uh, it was really cool to have an office of 150-plus people uh, to really bounce around energy. Yeah. We obviously at Zendesk, we're, we're struggling with the same thing. And I don't think there's a company out there that isn't struggling with it. And 
the the silver lining in all of this could very well be that um, you know sort of this idea of of more widespread vulnerability to to kind of go back to what you were speaking through before this idea of really putting humans at the center of our conversations and and being more open to recognizing that our work lives and our personal lives are kind of all blended and mixed up and that's okay. Um, I'll be curious to see should we come out of the other on the other side of this hole, which I think we will, um, but how that shifts just business philosophy in general. These are really interesting times to live through um, and what we're going to learn from it. I'm I'm so curious. <laughs> I am too. I hope I hope everybody's kind of uh, writing notes in their journal because one day those journal <laughs> notes might be in books where, when somebody says like, what was it like to live during this time? You know, like uh, I've never lived in a moment like this and, yeah. and I find it to be both, both you know, scary and exhilarating. Uh, and I think you're right. Uh, when, pe- when this first happened, I thought, oh yeah, you know, people said this is going to change the world. And I was like, I just didn't see it. I didn't have the perspective. And now I'm like, well, those people were very quick to know that this was going to change the world. And I think they are to- totally right. I- I'm interested to see, you know, how much we learn about our own mental health challenges because right now the distractions have, have really slowed down, right? There's, it's, it's harder to, to kind of naturally distract yourself throughout the day. That's my experience. And so people are kind of sitting with their stuff right now. And I'm, and I'm really hopeful that, you know, they're taking an opportunity to look at that stuff. And, you know, when that stuff could be sadness, it could be anger. Um, and just saying, where is it coming from? I'm a big proponent of having a counselor or a therapist to talk to, and I hope people have those resources right now. But I don't think we're going to have enough people getting those resources if we're kind of rooted in this idea of perfectionism, which is something I'd love to talk to you about. Yes, please do. I'm glad you brought that up. I know you have strong feelings about this. Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> and that being a perfectionist is a trap, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's I, I, I wish that um, the idea of perfectionism being brought up uh, – cause people to laugh and kind of be like, you know, how silly. Um, but the reality is, uh, people subscribe to the idea of I can be a perfectionist like uh, this and people uh, almost take it as a badge of honor. Like, uh, I'm a perfectionist. It's just who I am. They put it on their resumes. Um, and, and my belief is it's, it's an incredibly corrosive and contaminating uh, view of life. And it is self-limiting because a perfectionist uh, will naturally not want to practice new things uh, mm-hmm. because they're not going to be very good at those new things. And so the instinct to kind of pick up a new thing and just tinker with it uh, will be lost on a perfectionist because uh, it's going to be so highly uncomfortable to not be good at something if you're if you have to be perfect or nothing at all, right? And that's the proposition of a perfectionist. I'm either good at it all or I'm terrible. And who can live in that binary? <laughs> yeah, I cannot. So the alternative, you know, is, is wholeness. W h o l e n e s s. And I want a world where wholeness is is embraced in the way that perfectionism right now is. Because I don't think we see. I think perfectionism is so in the water that we can't even see it. We can't even see how much it limits us. It's like this big thing that is everywhere, eating at people, and they don't know it. Um, and so I want to get the word out about wholeness because wholeness is uh, allows you to recognize that you have above average qualities. Uh, average qualities and below average qualities, just like everybody else, right? There's nothing groundbreaking about that announcement, but a perfectionist can't acknowledge, you know, two out of the three there, uh, their averageness and their below averageness. I want people to recognize, hey, I'm, I'm a real person. I got places where I'm just not going to excel. And I got other places where I have natural strengths. And I'm going to be curious about places where I want to develop and be comfortable knowing that I'm not going to be good at them right away. Because who is good at anything that they have not practiced right away? I don't know anyone like that, but perfectionism just kind of crushes all that. And I'd like to see less crushing uh, of, of individual spirits and more curiosity and wholeness. And the way you're 
framing it up, it, it really, you know, it, I never thought of it this way until, until now, but this desire to be a perfectionist, it really would stifle innovation right. and the ability to create and, and start new companies and start new products if you feel you have it all figured out. I'm curious if you have any ideas on, on perfectionism is such a huge piece of at least American business culture. Um, how do you think we got to that point? What happened that suddenly, we know nobody's perfect. We tell our, we tell our kids that. We tell our, anybody we care about, we say nobody's perfect. Right. Yet we, at the same time, have upheld perfectionism as this positive ultimate goal. Well, you know, uh, I'm going to go there. I think it has everything to do with uh, our dualistic uh, views of religion. So um, if you look at monism, which is this idea that that, that uh, God or the creator, and, and you don't have to think of God as a person. You can think of God as, you know, the creator of, of you know, the Big Bang, whatever the heck, uh, whatever the, the heck happened there. Um, the idea of uh, creation and destruction being one and the same, that's monism. The, 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 what creates destroys and what destroys creates. Um, and and that, that's you and me. I can relate to that kind of God, right? Uh, a God that uh, creates and destroys and makes mistakes. And uh, in, in historic uh, versions of, of, of even the, uh, the Christian Bible, uh, God was shown as a destroyer and a creator. There wasn't this perfect God. It was a mixed bag of a God, a God who sent evil spirits on people. Yeah, we don't know. We don't hear about that God much anymore. We we hear a lot about a dualistic God, where there's uh, the perfect God, and then there's Satan that gets all the bad stuff. Well, who wants to be defined? Who wants to identify with Satan? I know I don't. Right. So we either have to choose the perfect God. That's who I want to look like, or Satan. And it didn't have to be that way. We could have been there. You, there's a, there's a historical religious precedence of monism, which is there. You're, they're, you're both. Everybody's both. And we are made in God's image. And God uh, is both a mixed bag, just like you and me. So I think I, that's where I think it comes from, is our view on, um, yeah, on, on God and the devil. Um, and think about how pervasive our views of God and the devil is. If you're, if you're an evil person, you do evil deeds, right? Now you're, now you're satanic. It's like, oh, God, that's scary. Um, so I don't know if you expected to talk about religion on this, uh, but, <laughs> but I really think that's the root of it. Did you read Sapiens by chance? Because I didn't. there's oh okay, you will like that book that um, they they talk about that they talk about these they, they they describe it as or the author writes about it as these myths that we all have to subscribe to in order for there to be glue in our society yeah. and us still really living through and experiencing when religion was the primary culture yeah. uh, that we were still very much bound to those laws. How, why now is the shift? Because I hear it from you and the way that you've founded your company and your goals and just who you are as a person. Um, but there does seem to be this generational shift as well. Is it, is it because we are starting to see a lack of subscription to religion as this, as our new generation workforce spins up? Yeah, I don't know. Now I'm going to ask you all these big questions. Like you. <laughs> well, no, I'm I'm, inter I'm interested in them because you know I think the dichotomy of good and evil. You know, that's I don't know if that's what they talk about in Sapiens, but it's like it's a false dichotomy. Like every everything's both, um, and we have to acknowledge that. Uh, and I, and uh, I think it's important to talk about it. I, I know that the reason I care about these things is because they're genuine to my experience. I, I don't want to exist. To, I don't want to work in a company that is fear driven, uh, where the culture of compliance is driven around being scared. I know that I don't work well in that environment. So when crafting an environment, I don't have any reason to think it's wise to, to, to bring make less than that environment. Um, when I feel scared 
all I want to do is not be scared, right? When I feel like I'm under somebody's thumb, all I want to do is get out from under their thumb. And I might be compliant in the moment, but I don't have any long-term allegiance to somebody who's scaring me in order to keep me compliant, right? I do have a tremendous amount of allegiance to people who love me. Um, and that allegiance, uh, that allegiance will get me to do a heck of a lot more uh, than if I'm scared of somebody. And I think historically our workplace cultures have been uh, dominance-driven and fear-driven. Uh, and love and compassion are, are the greatest drivers of accountability uh, that, that, that people have. Um, so bringing them into the workplace in a genuine way and showing love and compassion, uh, we can create a tremendous amount of accountability and we can create true relationships. And we can still fire people, which is what uh, which is where people go a lot when I say love and compassion. Well, don't we still have to fire people? Absolutely. That's the accountability part, right? You and I can have an agreement about what it looks like to do our job well, and we communicate along that. And if this continually is not working out, it isn't compassionate for me to say it's time to move on. Uh, it's time to move on. There is something clearly not working here, right? Uh, it is It is compassionate for me to do that, and I can do it in a compassionate way. I can be definitive about we need to make a transition without being abrupt and saying it has to be today. You know, like, hey, in six weeks, uh, uh, let's work on the transition. I want you to start interviewing right now. Give some time, right? We don't have to be abrupt. So we can be loving and compassionate in the workplace and still create accountability, and it's true accountability, and we can still fire people. Like, yeah. they're not mutually exclusive. And that's like, I'll have you touch upon that too, because um, in addition to, I know, your, your sort of passion around speaking about perfectionism and sort of the flaws within that idea of perfectionism, it's something you mentioned earlier is this idea of avoiding difficult conversations. Um, and that would be one of those things where when we look at someone who's not performing or when we have to correct someone's behaviors, this fear of difficult conversations that sort of holds us back. Did you want to talk about that at all? I know you have a lot to say on that topic and would love to hear it straight from you. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah, I, I find difficult conversations to be uh, – it's probably the hardest uh, chapter to apply in the book, um, and, and the people tell me that. Uh, they, they, but it's one of the ones they want to develop a muscle around more than any other because we don't get a lot of education on how to have a difficult conversation in a way that doesn't create more hurt and harm in the relationship. So my belief is people model uh, the style of their caregivers, um, and they might model them uh, by going diametrically opposite. So if my caregiver was an arguer, I'm going to be an avoider. Or if my, or, or we might just model them directly. If I were an avoider, I'm going to avoid too. You know, whatever I learned growing up, I'm either going to go to polar opposite or do the same thing because it's what I know, and it's what all our parents knew, right? It's not like uh, they, it's not like they learned it and then they decided to do it a different way. Nobody taught anybody. You know, all the way down the line, there's nobody to blame here, right? It's just histories of not being taught. So. Um, let, let's figure out how to have difficult conversations. There are models for it, and I lay one out in the book. It's called nonviolent communication or compassionate communication. And, and it really has everything to do with sticking to universals. Uh, so instead of judging somebody and saying, hey, I think you're being lazy, or I thought that was stupid, or I thought that was rude, or, those are all judgments, and that's how often what our, what our language is rooted in, judgment, judgment, judgment. We can say, I observed this. Uh, you said these words, you know, quote the person. I was frustrated when I heard that. That is uh, sticking to a universal by using a feeling instead of a thought. And so I lay out feelings in the book because having a vocabulary for feeling words is hugely helpful to having difficult conversations. Coming to them and saying, I'm sad, or I'm frustrated, or I'm uneasy, or I'm nervous, or even on the other side of it saying, I'm excited, right? Because those are feelings too, and we can have positive feelings. And when, when we have a positive, when we have a, when our needs are being met, we have positive feelings. When our needs are not being met, we have uh, negative feelings. Uh, so I can come to somebody and say, I'm frustrated. Um, I value support and I'm not sensing support right now. 
and I'm getting far really quickly to say, hey, I'm frustrated. You know where my headspace is. You know what it's like to be frustrated, right? That's why feeling words are so cool. People can relate to them. They go, oh, I've been angry. I've been uneasy. And, and, they, and they can now empathize. And then I can say, you know, I value support. And they go, well, I value support too. And uh, I can say, I don't sense it right now. And, and by saying, I don't sense it, I'm not saying it's not happening. I'm saying I'm not getting it. I'm not sensing it, right? It's, not a, it's just me sticking to what I'm feeling and what I'm sensing um, and speaking to observations instead of evaluations. And observations are concrete facts. And then it's making a request uh, and saying, hey, can we try something different? Uh, and, and if we follow those patterns of uh, observing, stating how we feel, uh, defining the underlying need and making requests, uh, people can hear us. But if I come to you, Tiffany, and I say, this whole thing's stupid, and I think it's just broken and dumb, you haven't learned much about what I'm actually experiencing, right? So I, that's, that's the model in the book. I think it's hugely important that we communicate uh, more strongly, and I think we'll have more marriages that, that persist and more friendships that get richer. And last thing I'll say in it, uh, anti-fragility is this concept by Nassim Taleb. It's this idea that uh, or some, some things uh, benefit from stress and disorder and chaos, so long as the stress, yes. disorder, and chaos isn't, um, is, is not chronic, right? Chronic stress is not good for anything. But acute stress uh, in certain things can, uh, can make them stronger, and humans are an example of that. And I think uh, uh, relationships are also an example of that, that if we stress a relationship with difficult conversations, we actually can make those relationships stronger. Uh, but I think a lot of people make fragile relationships by never stressing them. They, mm -hmm. And they try not to stress avoiding the difficult conversation, but it ends up weakening the relationship. So we can actually create stronger relationships by communicating about what's frustrating to us or what we need. And in that moment, it's acute stress. But guess what? We bet, I bet we come out of it stronger. I That's excellent. And I am going to try my best to transfer that question to how you can see that from the customer experience. And, mm. and notably right now, given, you know, that we're, we're living with a lot of frustration, there are a lot of difficult conversations happening right now. Um, oftentimes when we're working with our customers, unfortunately, they're not usually coming to us because they just want to talk. Usually they're frustrated about something as well. And, and some of these conversations can, can be really uh, emotional and whatnot. I'm curious as to uh, right now, how are you applying some of those principles and, and how are you nurturing your customer community right now at Lessonly? Yeah. Our customers deserve if, uh, to know with certainty when we know something with certainty, and even if it's bad news. You know, I, I, uh, bad news early is good news, is, is a motto we throw around at Lessonly. Uh, Ruth Clark, uh, we think, coined that. Bad news early is good news. Um, so if we have to deliver bad news to a customer that something isn't coming like we hoped it would, maybe, you know, a roadmap-wise, or that uh, we can't meet a request that they asked for us, I think the perfectionist would come to that customer and say, well, you know, we're still trying to figure it out. We're still trying to figure it out. And they would kind of delay. Uh, and maybe they would think they could figure it out. But ultimately, that just creates a longer period of uncertainty and more of a bummer when they find out we're just not going to be able to do it. So having the difficult conversation of delivering bad news early, everybody deserves that respect. Because when you get bad news early, you can plan. You know, you can plan uh, and be informed about how you're planning. If you're telling me you're not coming to my party, right, and you give me that bad news early, well, then I can plan around you not being there. You know, as opposed to if you tell me the day before, um, maybe I've already made plans that had you built into them, you know. So bad news early is good news. That's a difficult conversation that we have to have. Um, but it's respectful. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, it shows that we care about somebody by telling them what's really happening as opposed to trying to dressing it up uh, and acting like everything's perfect. Yeah. And as the as the CEO of the company, how do you how do you manage to stay connected to your customer experience? Because as your company scales, as you grow, I mean, you can't help but be further away from sort of that bread and butter of your business. What are you doing to sort of stay on top of it so that the mission and this book that you've published um, continue to remain genuine and core to how you're running your business? Yeah, I think it's two parts. And one of them is, uh, I, I, I think, kind of philosophic, philosophical, which is if I'm able to model what I need uh, to my direct reports, um, where I say I don't know when I don't know, and I apologize when I make a mistake, and I share before I'm ready like I want them to, they will turn around and, and, and pass those same things along to their direct reports and so on and so forth. It becomes a cascading kind of a fountain you know, effect of comes out the top and goes all the way down. Um, if I, uh, but if I don't do that, right, if I'm not sharing before I'm ready and I expect everybody else to, that's asymmetrical and it's just never gonna work. So my first job is to model. And when I make a mistake, to apologize because that's what I want one of my direct reports to do if they make a mistake in front of their direct reports. And then I want that direct report to do the same thing to anybody else who they work with. You get the idea. So mm -hmm. this can scale in a big way so long as we're all doing our jobs on, on modeling. And then taking walk and talks with anybody on the front lines and asking them how things are going and, and, and letting them know that I'm not here just to hear the good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I want to know what's frustrating to them. I want to know what's in their way. Um, I want to know where, they, where they're struggling to do their work. Um, and, and we have a talent team who also does that too, so kind of threading that needle in a bunch of different ways. And then going on to uh, uh, calls with our uh, customer experience team, this is a new thing that we're doing with our account managers, and they do deal reviews where we sit down in an hour and a half long meeting and uh, they'll, they'll do reviews of their, of their customers, uh, the customers who are you know, trending well and just crushing, the customers who we're having challenges with, and we'll brainstorm together. And I'll learn a ton during that about places that you know, the organization could be more supportive of our account managers and therefore our customers. Um, so you know, getting back in the weeds every now and then for an hour and a half, really helpful. And then just mm -hmm. making sure that I'm, I'm living what I'm asking people to do uh, in creating that symmetry. Uh, those things help a ton. And then letting people go when it's not working out is how we keep a, a healthy culture, right? So it's just not going to work out with everybody. Um, and we, can, we don't need to we can do that in a way, like I said, that is compassionate. So I think that keeps the that keep those keep the wheels on the bus so far. Well, for our, our sort of final question today, just because I could keep asking you questions, I think for the next three hours. This has been so fun to get to know you, <laughs> Tiffany. Thank you. Likewise, um, what do you think is next for Lessonly? I mean, I know that's like such a typical question to ask um, a CEO and a founder, but come on, like really what is next? Like, do, yeah. are you even, are you even planning out, you know, that, that far in advance? Or are you kind of taking it every three to six months at this point? Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever been um, visionary in the way of like, here's our five-year plan. Uh, I think yeah. I may be developing a bit more confidence and a bit more experience to, to, to look farther out um, and to see that I don't need to have all the details figured out, you know, kind of challenging the perfectionist in me of like, well, you know, I can't look far, five years out because I don't possibly know. And I'm starting to realize, well, that's not the point, right? It is not, it's not the point. It's kind of getting getting a vision out there. I'm getting more comfortable with that. I would not call myself uh, highly comfortable with it. I tend to think kind of in the year. Um, and I think, I think in our mission standpoint, helping people understand the value of practice is a, is a big thing on my mind. And the precursor to practice is play, uh, P-L-A-Y. Um, and what play does is allows us to... Um, 
practice new instincts or practice new experiences. Uh, and uh, what, think about what a kid does when they're playing with something. They don't go read the instruction manual. They just pick it up and they start tinkering with it. And they learn how the thing works by playing with it. And they're not looking left and right going, am I doing this right, right? The, which, which is what a perfectionist would do or kind of an adult would do. Like, I don't want to look silly, so how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Constantly sandy checking. They're just playing and they're learning through play. So tapping back into the, our instinct to play is something that's highly motivating to me um, because I want us to practice more. And if we don't tap into our play instinct, we will not practice more. I want us to learn new things. I think every time we learn new things, we get a new lens on the world. Um, a slightly adjusted lens in the world or a majorly adjusted lens in the world. And that for me is what keeps life fresh. What keeps life exciting is how do I get different lenses? Oh wow, now that I've learned that new thing or practiced a new thing, I see the world differently, you know? That is stimulating as heck to me. And I think the last thing I'll say on this, Tiffany, is I think that the arc of humanity or of human life today is going from a playful baby to a serious adult. And I think it's a shame. I think a lot of us live as serious people with serious jobs, doing serious work in serious houses. And that bums the hell out of me because I've never seen imaginative, imaginative and creative serious people. Uh, what I see in serious rooms is a lot of, is creativity and imagination getting sucked out of the room. If we wanna kind of build the future, uh, we can't be growing up to be serious people in serious rooms and serious houses doing serious work. We have to keep playing because play can solve important problems. Uh, my, my, my job here is, I mean, my, my message here is not to say that, that things are not allowed to be important. They absolutely are. But we can, but we can decouple an important thing from a, kind of a grave thing. It doesn't have to be grave, right? We can, we can be playful to solve important problems. And I think we need to be. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for um, bringing that type of leadership into tech. You know, we're, we're based out here in San Francisco. Um, I've been in the industry for a while now, and it's refreshing to have someone not shy away from the, the human aspects of what it, of what it means to, to be a worker and what it means to how, how bringing that sort of human-centric philosophy into how you scale your business and keep it really a core part of it. I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, that's how you'll get the best out of people, you know? It works for us, and I hope it works for more companies, and it's been so fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Max. It was a pleasure having you on the pod. I can listen to you and Tiffany talking for days. You're both such an inspiration to me. I'm with you, Pedro. I wish we could just listen to those two nonstop. Max's perspective on the importance of building your team is spot on, and I love how he talks about a team sinking or swimming together. And like Tiffany, we are all missing our office and our favorite coffee drinks. But hold tight, we are in this together and this new reality is not over yet. We'll be back with season two, bringing more fascinating stories of makers building a new generation of startups that will shape our new normal. Want to share your story and be on our podcast? Send us an email at startups at zendas.com. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you're getting your podcast. You updated on season two soon. And when Pedro and I are not recording this podcast, we are part of Zendesk for Startups. If you're a startup, go to www.zendesk.com forward slash startups and sign up to join our program. Qualified companies get six months free of Zendesk software for customer support, sales and customer engagement teams. They also get connected with our exclusive community of leaders and partners who are changing the landscape of customers' experiences. Talk to you next time. Stay, Stay safe, safe and, and hungry. hungry.